This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballaman, and this is London FinTech Podcast, episode 178, brought to you in association with Smart and the unlistedboard.com. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Roy Samuel, co-founder and CEO of Connected. That's C-O-N-N-E-C-T-D.co with one E only, to discuss the interesting idea of a marketplace to connect founders, investors, and NEDs slash advisors slash mentors, a topic Roy should know something about, as that's what Connected does. Way back in the day, the LFP started with 001 and Matchy.biz, who were creating a marketplace to connect innovative firms with incumbents who needed that innovation. So the idea of a connection function or market in fintech has been around for some time. As Matchy.biz were acquired by KPMG in 2017, they were clearly not only successful at creating such a marketplace, but their marketplace did so well that like a hoover hoovering itself up, they got sucked through their own portal too. Markets sound like a good idea, albeit one that crony capitalism is forgetting. Markets, of course, operate best and most simply where what they trade is fungible. For example, a million US dollars or gold bullion of a certain quality. However, as every marriage broker knows, people aren't exactly entirely fungible. Indeed, they are perhaps the least fungible thing going. But all these swipe left and swipe right apps seem to make a living for themselves and entertainment for the swipers with some success in the dating and mating game. Can these concepts, or something between the two, apply to enabling and empowering entrepreneurs and founders? After all, the most useful attributes for a founder are acquiring funders, good board members, advisors and or mentors. Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good morning, Roy. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Hey, Mike. Great to be here. Now, I was talking um, up front about your idiosyncratic use of ease, and I've, I've labelled one of those already, but what's the, uh, the average listener, or maybe every particular listener, possibly, to the show will not realise is that you managed to spell your name, Roy, with an E. So how do you do that then? Absolutely. It looks like a countdown board someone gave up on halfway through after getting one constant three vowels, but it, it's spelled R-O-E-I, and it speaks to my mixed background, the very exotic mix of half Hungarian and half Scottish. I see. So uh, I would ask which vowels came from which, which direction, and, and Hungarian's a very strange language. So, yeah, so where is R-O-E come from? Or did your parents kind of compromise, and, and one chose the rot, and the other chose the A-E or something? Just like Countdown, but, uh, you know, they, they took turns. No, it's, it's actually an Israeli name, because my mum was born into communist Hungary, and they actually escaped uh, during the, the late 60s and emigrated uh, originally to Israel, and then over to Scotland, uh, as you do, uh, where she met my father. So it's actually an Israeli name, although neither of my parents are Israeli, but uh, I think it had a place in my mum's heart as, as the place that she escaped to. Ah, that's cool. And the, uh, the bit that reduces me to tears on, on that, but I think we've thrashed this one to death long enough on the, on the podcast, which is uh, the concept that in the past people used to escape here 
to these islands as a, as a place of freedom. But anyway, let's gloss over, over that before I, I'm in tears. Now, one of the corollaries actually of the not being a lot of freedom going around is that uh, entertainments are sort of more limited than they were. Plenty of listeners as well will be sort of stuck watching sort of uh, looking at a PC screen during the day and, and perhaps sometimes in the evening watching a, a television screen. So we thought of actually a unique starter, because I say unique because we've normally found things more interesting this the last seven years of, of actually what did you watch on the box recently? <laughs> we watched some good things, so I'll, but I'll let you go first. So as a time-strapped founder, as you can imagine, TV unfortunately isn't what it, what it used to be in my life. But I saw a fantastic documentary recently on Netflix called Seaspiracy, which is, a, I suppose, an homage to Cowspiracy, which was a, a big documentary that released a few years back around veganism and, and the environmental and ethical impacts of meat. And this was basically doing the same thing, but within fishing, uh, not so much in terms of eating fish, but the impacts, both intended and unintended, in terms of, of consequences that overfishing and, and the, the level of commercialization within overfishing has, has caused uh, the universe and, and, and beyond. And so was this sort of intellectual or ent- entertainment interest to you, or did it sort of transform you into a, a nut or a nut eater, rather? <laughs> I think Freudian all, slip, of course. Yeah, of course. I think with these things, you have to take a pinch of salt. With the nuts or with the fish? Both are good when cooked properly. <laughs> but I think you need to take it with a pinch of salt because anyone can choose selective case studies and selective statistics to prove anything they want. So I think there are, of course, some, some really daunting figures within there. For example, if overfishing does continue to the extent that we do it now, potentially there will be no fish in the ocean by 2048. And even if that's out by 2030 years, or even if it's missing the mark slightly, I think it does speak to a problem that we are aware of, but actually find very difficult to grasp. Because unlike any other industry, this does happen in the middle of the ocean. It's so difficult to actually know what's going on. And we know that in the post-truth society that we exist in, it's hard enough to get our heads around things which are happening on ground, let alone in international water. So I thought conceptually it was quite interesting. And what did you watch that one on? That's on Netflix. Well, that sounds like a good topic. I mean, one of the things that makes me think of, which I find a bit sad, which is that the, uh, in the world of extreme, this sort of environmental agenda has been captured by sort of like most things, by, by extremists, because their stuff gets it amplified more than sort of, you know, decent, sensible, moderate views, because they don't get re- retweets or stuff like that. Because in reality, I think everybody is concerned about the environment, but environmentalism has got such a sort of um, a brand. And um, this sort of industrialised rape of the seas is a disgrace. It seems to take a, a long time to get n- not a lot of progress. Sadly, I mean, when I were a lad, uh, I remember the uh, Brits, perhaps in one of our last wars ever, one of our last own wars ever. Oh, I guess the Falklands was a bit of a, a skirmish, but anyway, it was uh, the Icelandics versus the British over, over cod fishing. Uh, you know, and that was a big deal. That was on the sort of TV news, I think it was in the 70s or, or something like that, over cod stocks and whose cods were there. And, uh, uh, you know, I didn't bother looking at the details of Brexit, but one of the details there was European fishing rights. We gave away too much and... Um, and all this kind of stuff. So that sounds like a useful one. Well, we watch some, some things a little bit more entertaining. Actually, I've got some recommendations. This is Amazon Prime Video. They've got some great content, and uh, there were th- two or three, actually. There's a very good French series on The Silk Road, where actually he starts in Venice and goes east, ends up in China. By the time he's got to China, he's too much kowtowing to the 
the Chinese, which is presumably he had to do or something like that. So, you know, we gloss over the Uyghurs. They're, they're a nice people, the Uyghurs. They're really happy. Oh, yes, OK, apart from the million in prison. So, the, yes, the Silk Road by French Tap, it, it's really very good um, because it's French, but it's, it's translated into English. So that one was brilliant. Another one we saw recently, which relates to the sea, but in a sort of frozen way, which is, uh, it's called A Year on Ice. Anybody with Amazon Prime can get all these for free, even if they watch it on their computer. A Year on Ice is fantastically filmed, um, and it's about the research stations on Antarctica, but filmed over an entire year, including, and this is a good one to watch in lockdown, because it makes you glad to be in the kind of lockdown you're in, including the winter. So there's a tiny number of people who do the winter in Antarctica, uh, and winter in Antarctica is, is A, pretty cold, uh, B, pretty windy. Um, I won't spoil some of that, that for people. But also, the sun doesn't rise for four months. So it's dark for four months. And that's just really interesting. I mean, by the end of it, actually, they've got this thing they call T3. And I wish they'd explain what T3 was, T3 syndrome, which is their brain, they have brain fades, which I must say is something I kind of noticed myself after too much lockdown and not socialising. So yes, that one's, that one's really good. A year on ice, uh, Amazon Prime. And then the third one that I'd, I'd super recommend, we saw this week, actually, which is Tehran Taxi, which is absolutely brilliant. And it's something I didn't even know existed called a docu-fiction which is, it's a fictional screen thing, but it's set as a, a documentary about a taxi driver. But it's very interesting seeing this guy drive around Tehran and, and also, you know, what kind of passes for discourse over there. And, and this poor chap talking about being locked down, he's not allowed to leave the country for 20 years or something because he, he upset the powers that be. So anyway, there we go, listeners. Seascape, a year on ice. The Silk Road, there are several, but make sure it's a French one. And uh, Tehran Taxi. Okay, so that's a unique uh, introduction for a change. Um, maybe in a few years' time, we'll get back to discussing holidays, I hope. So, in terms of, Roy, your career journey, did you come down from Scotland? Is this why you've sort of got this proud Scottish-looking beard? Or, or, or did, you, did your parents actually manage to make it to the sort of civilised southeast? Well, that's actually a debate in and of itself, whether this, is a, whether this is a proud Scottish beard or a proud Hungarian beard. I think both would want to, uh, want to claim it. But no, I was, I was born and raised in London. And apart from studying in Nottingham uh, for an undergraduate for three years, I've, I've always been here. And then how come you're here today on the podcast? What happened in the meantime? So I finished my undergrad in Nottingham, came down to the London School of Economics to do a master's in international conflict studies. I, I wanted to become a diplomat. But whilst I was there, I founded my first technology startup called Real Sport, which was essentially a content creation toolkit, helping people create podcasts, videos, other types of media and then a community within that platform to share all the content with. And as the name suggests, we applied that to the sports and esports market. For those who don't know esports, it's essentially competitive video gaming, where we saw a massive market opportunity versus the slightly more saturated world of sports and, and big rights holders, which you have to compete with. I have to say, talking stuff that we watched, I think it was last year or the year before, I did actually watch on YouTube, which I watch a lot of YouTube stuff. The, uh, this sounds very silly, but actually, one of Bridget's sons were here, actually. They walked in and said, what rubbish are you watching? And they, got, they sat down and they got sucked into it, which was the World Tetris Championships. Uh, and it was really engaging, actually. I mean, this is a, a multi, multi-billion dollar industry and, and actually one of, of uh, Britain's biggest exports in terms of, of media. And when you look at some of the stats around gaming that in a year it's worth more than films and music combined, I mean, it really is a very compelling space to be in. And we were really, really fortunate with that and managed to, to scale that community 
from initially 100,000 users in the UK to just over 9.5 million, UK, US, Australia, and Canada primarily, which was a fantastic experience and really getting to understand online community and, and how you can really harness network effects in a smart way to, to build a bit of a virtuous circle. And it's great to work in the passion economy because so many people are just this by day, but huge sports fan by night, for example. Um, we managed to bring on as well some incredibly strategic investors, which really changed what we were able to do. So our lead investor at Real Sport was a, a gentleman called Nigel Ray, who has you know, fantastic business experience and scaled and invested in lots of fantastic companies, but also owns Saracen's Rugby Club and, and was able to really help us in, in a strategic way, navigate that world of sports and sports media, uh, and really could see the power of strategic angel investors. That business was then acquired in 2018 by a UK PLC called Gfinity. And the CEO of the company at the time was a gentleman called Gary Cook. And Gary was, for example, the CEO of Man City and oversaw their sale to the Mansour family. He was on the board of the UFC when they went through their $4 billion acquisition. So an amazing chance to have genuinely strategic investors and advisors around me from, from a very early stage in my career, uh, learn from incredible people and facilitate my movement from initially founder into angel investor and advisor as well. So I've been active as, as an angel and advisor for the last three years, um, mentoring at Virgin Startup, the, the LSE spin-out, and really found my passion in trying to bring all three of those, those profile types together in a smart way. Ah, oh, interesting. So you're one of those relatively rara arvises in that at this rate, you could be one of these few people who never actually worked for anybody else, which is a, a pretty cool thing. And I don't know what you think, but I think the average school leaver, university leaver is probably well advised to go and work for some cool founder and apprentice themselves a little bit and, and understand a little bit about what it's about before they sort of set sail themselves. I mean, you know, life doesn't always work out in a linear fashion. So terms and conditions apply and it may or may not work. I mean, what's your feeling? Is it, I mean, having done it, I mean, in a sense, don't take this the wrong way, but it's in a sense, if you do something and it works out fine, there can be a tendency to think, oh, actually, it's not too hard to be like relationships. Some people go out with someone at the age of 16 and get married 10 years later. I think it was fairly straightforward. And some people have a few good relationships and then I think, oh, I know how to do this, and then actually they don't. So what's your just general feel on that? That's really interesting. It's a, it's a brilliant question, Mike, because I, I genuinely think that there are two types of entrepreneurs, at least. But I do see people who leave university or they leave school and they go into an industry and work there for 5 to 20, 25 years and really learn what's going on and say, ah, oh, I see an opportunity here. I see the chance to do something better. And I'm going to take everything that I've done and then actively decide to go down the entrepreneurial route and say, well, based off everything above, I'm going to go and do this. And I think you have other types of people who cannot fit into a mold. And I don't mean to, to glorify that. I mean, that, that there's lots of cons that come with that as well. But I think people who just are unemployable and realize that they need to do something for themselves in order to find that place. And lots of people will do lifestyle businesses, they'll become freelancers for that purpose. But I, I really do see in my experience of dealing with lots of different founders that you can pretty much broad bucket these people into, into two camps. Right, okay, so in terms of spotting opportunities and going for it and all that, so what was it that made you one morning, you woke up and went, 
Oh, I know, I'll form Connected. So I think the struggles that founders go through are very, very well documented in terms of you know, having to bootstrap, connecting with strategic people, and I think we all know this. But what I found fascinating was after the acquisition, I was fortunate enough to start angel investing. And I could see very quickly that as many hurdles as there were and barriers to entry there were as a founder, there were as many as an investor, and potentially even more. Because if you're a founder going through the fundraise, going through that build, it is your life. It's all consuming. But if you're an investor, you potentially have 50 other things going on which take precedence. And what I could see was 3 4% of angel investors, and we can ex uh, expand this out to board advisors and non-execs, have the infrastructure or positioning for the best origination for the best due diligence. They can get into these opportunities because they know the right people and they know what they're doing. And especially on the investment side, maybe 95, 96% of angel investors in the UK who are making their engagements based on the tax benefit. And this tax benefit is brilliant, don't get me wrong. There's, there's nothing wrong with that at all. But the idea that these people who have had brilliant careers, they've amassed not just capital, but expertise and experience who are not getting the same level of opportunity as, as the people who are geared up to do so. So originally we, we thought of the idea of Connected as family office as a service for our, our, our initially our own network of investors, advisors, people within the space. And it really went on from there. But I think that, that was, that was the, the aha moment. Okay, so it was personal experience of this and unsurprisingly, this is echoed in my experience and researches. I mean, just in terms of what you're talking about there, the, the language I used in my book was that I differentiated between angels with a small a and angels with a capital A. An angel with a small a is some guy who, for the sake of argument, was working at Barclays trading FX and made loads of bloody money and he's got plenty of money and now he's bored sitting at home and his wife wants him out of the house. So, you know, he just wants to sort of sit on a, sit on a, a company many founders take such people because you know someone wants to offer you 50 or 100 grand at the beginning that sounds quite good but you're bringing somebody into the company whose added value is solely money and then you find that actually their experience is bloody useful if you were training fx in megabank but actually you ain't you're doing gaming or something like that or you're doing you know this this kind of thing so um those angels caveat emptor but then as you say you've got capital a angels who very much are in the minority, and in terms of the by now 100 people I've interviewed on, on these topics, the few people that have such a capital A angel, they are so fulsome in their praise. It's almost a gift from God, the, the way they talk about the mega good angels, and a bit like what you're saying about the, the you know your network and your prior incarnation. It makes a hell of a difference to have those kind of connections. So, so yes, there's a huge um, differentiation, um, and it comes. So you had found that out by experience, by talent, good fortune, and then angeling uh, yourself. So what took you from that point to thinking, ah, well, there's probably a hell of a lot of founders in, I don't know, the UK, and there's a hell of a lot of angels, there's a hell of a lot of funders, and they don't all know each other and all that kind of stuff. And of course, there are loads of angel networks and these kind of things floating around as existing approaches. So what led you to go in the direction you've gone? And what was it about the existing approaches that you thought didn't quite sort of work? as well as it might? Well, it's really interesting because I think it's clear for everyone to see that online community, online connectivity has worked for 20 plus years. 
subcultures have been using these mechanisms to meet and connect and flourish digitally for a very long time now. And that could be music, it could be lifestyle, or as I experienced with real sport, could be sports and video gaming. And the tools used to foster that connection have improved enormously over that period of time, starting with very basic search function all the way through to data-led machine learning models and, and complex algorithms. And what I thought was very, very interesting is the business community and most specifically the angel, the early stage founder, the early stage board advisor community were never going to take these things seriously. Yes, maybe you could meet people online, but actually getting things done, specifically transactions, entering into these agreements, were going to be done offline. They were going to be done on the golf course, in the hotel lobby, wherever it might be. And then enter COVID. And now suddenly these tools, which previously had been dismissed, are now not just the preferred mechanism, but the only mechanism for having these things happen. So if you cast your mind back to 18 months ago, the idea of VCs leading large investment rounds without multiple face-to-face meetings, let alone the millions of pounds we've seen flow globally without a single hand being shook, you know, we really start to understand that it's actually the education that the market's undergone in the last 18 months, which really now does make this an exciting proposition because as you said there are many of these angel groups which have existed for a long time but I think now it's the time to change that into a a digital first solution and and I think that's something which we've now seen with the huge growth of of businesses which were just fortunate well positioned at that time and at that space to to capitalize on on COVID. Nigel Verdon was on the show before you at Wells Bank and they they acquired a whole chunk of Wirecard when Wirecard blew up fell apart or whatever and I think he was saying that they did that entirely digitally against something which you know previously you wouldn't buy huge chunks of companies without actually going around and looking at the floor tiles or seeing the people or something like that so digitization has been accelerated you saw the opportunity uh, in in the first first place um, and the sort of angel networks and the old school kind of networking around didn't work Um, and I know that from my buddies who are are NEDs and stuff because especially on listed boards you've got all this rotation you know you're independent but on one day, then a day later you're not independent because the rules, you know, blah, 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 blah. And then also, of course, coming on to the sort of dating and mating stuff. I mean, I think the best example is, is chairman. The people I've spoken to who are sort of happiest with their chairman have taken something like three or six months to find the right person. Because, you know, let's say you've got your business and, and you're, you're growing rapidly in a year or two. And the chairman's the most extreme example because he's closest to the, the founder, the CEO, as well as being responsible for the board and, and, and investor relations more and more over time. You're not going to suddenly, mixing my metaphors, leap into bed with your chairman as a result of half a shandy in a pub in in the evening kind of stuff. But even in that extreme case, I know a very old school chairman, a very talented chairman, who's been busy getting new gigs via digital interface over the last year. So this all sounds wonderful. So then we get on to the challenges section, which is in terms of the Top Gear Maxim, how hard can it be? In the same way you ain't going to marry somebody after sort of swiping left or right on a mobile phone. As I said in the sort of dating and mating game or marriage broking game, this is a pitch relationship in the business context. If you've got NEDs or you've got advisors, you know, there's a human relationship which is really important as part of that. You know, some people get on with each other, some people don't. So there's a lot of chemistry involved. So to that extent, 
how do you see this challenge for the market, both for you as a company, but also people in similar spaces doing something sort of related, where you're, you're basically matching up human beings, in this case in a professional context, but it is for a relationship. You're matching them for a relationship where both sides are bringing something to the party. Absolutely, absolutely. And in an ideal world, any founder is going to look at their own network and say, you know, I need this skill set, I need this area of exposure and expertise. And if it's within their existing network, that's probably going to be their first port of call for bringing on an advisor. However, for many founders, especially young founders, if you don't have anyone within your immediate network who does tick those boxes and really bring something valuable in terms of what you need, then it's better to not compromise and say, you know, square peg, round hole. It is better to go and explore who else might be out there who can fit the bill. Now, the problem you're talking about when this is so dependent on a strong personal relationship is not just a, dig a digital problem. This is a problem that exists in that recruitment process in totality. Because whenever you are trying to match a job spec with a CV, actually you're just using a very basic keyword matching function with subjective bias uh, that any individual helping in that process will have. But in reality, you need to be matching the person to the person rather than the scope to the keyword. And I think that's why it's so critical to align people, not just on that skill set, but on the mentality. Track record is one thing, values are another. So this problem it goes much further than, than, than digital uh, solutions. However, the idea is if you can create a ma matching capability which takes all of the above into question and challenges that initial model of, of I need to reach someone who I don't know, then you can actually create something which is a bit more all encapsulating when it comes to the things important to the founder and advisor, not just the traditional recruitment process. Yes, and I think we need to strongly differentiate here between listed companies that you're not talking about and the unlisted. So I was talking to a headhunter of listed companies recently, and he was talking to me about the challenges of doing things in COVID. Listed companies, like much of society, have become more like all factoryized. It's a factory process in the same way that Ford factoryized the sort of craft manufacture of, of cars into assembly lines and all that kind of stuff. And the quote from this headhunter, was it's much harder to really assess the quality of people staring at them over Zoom. However, these boards, talking about listed, these boards are too stupid to notice the difference anyway. So as long as they've got the right boxes ticked on the CV, a lot of them these days are around race and gender and stuff like that, and da 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 da, -da -dee, then they've ticked the boxes at the far end. You know, it's like nobody ever gets sacked for buying IBM. So in that world, you literally are seeing a kind of keyword matching thing going on and appointments being made to listed company boards on that basis. This is why the market works so well on LinkedIn. You can do the right kind of search and you can find the right kind of candidate for listed. Now, that is treating people as bits. Now, big companies have got their own franchises. They're held in place in lots of cases by massive regulation, all that kind of stuff. The world you're talking about is the antithesis of that. Whereas you say it's very human. In the world that you're talking about, advisors, neds, and that, and angels, you want results. So how do you approach that from a digital perspective? Because you're not a factoryized 
world. I started uh, the London Fintech podcast uh, keeping track of all the episodes and I used tags. And I wish I never used tags because, oh, what a pain in the arse it is. So, so on this episode, I'll have to think of five tags for it. And, you know, it, it's such a, it's a silly system. Or, for example, um, let's say I'm on your system and I tag myself, you know, what, what, what do you think describes you best? Well, I'm cool, witty, intelligent, charming, handsome, you know, all these kind of stuff. So I just tick all the nice words and don't tick in the bad ones. So how, how do you digitize something which is kind of ineffable really something where keyword matching on a cv won't take you very far so i think there's got to be uh, there is an element of, of psychometric around this because ultimately especially with a board advisor where as you correctly say this is not a box ticking exercise in any means this is not about corporate control this is about corporate creativity and this is about boardroom creativity it's about understanding how these people are going to, to gel in a more data-led way. Because another really difficult thing to navigate is when people are trying to sell themselves, they're giving you the version of themselves that they want you to have. And it's so difficult, even face-to-face. It can, with, with very intelligent people, it can be years until you get beyond the, 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 the sellable version. So by bringing in a mix of psychometric element, psychometric testing, with the hard skills, and the soft skills and the hard criteria and the soft criteria, in a very data-led way, we can really start to understand where these matches make most sense, where these things are, are really applicable. And I think a lot of it comes from expertise and experience. These early stage businesses want a specific set of skills, bits of advice, and it can be very single issue led which is where mentorship and advisory lends itself more than a, a, a company's house non-exec role. So I also think it's about allowing these people to understand what they want and what that should look like rather than saying this needs to be a full-blown non-exec or, or this needs to be something which is much more formalized. So I think it's just allowing people to be as granular as they want, not just on the skill set but also psychometrically and in terms of, of what the right level of commitment should look like. And it's a blend of those three which really creates something powerful when you can get it right. So in the unlisted, in the entrepreneurial sector, you're basically saying that actually the task can be divided, should we say, into two halves. One of which is the skill sets. And I'm, I'm a thousand percent for, if you want a new Ned, don't just hire a Ned. Hire one with fundraising experience or hire one with listing experience or hire one with operationalized experience who will help you grow a company and turn more into BMW factory from a sort of a, a craft. So there are various skill sets you're after. So that is very digital. So, you know, one can put those kind of things down. And then I, I presume the, the other part of it is, is that there's a human being relationship thing, which is that, and maybe it's good to dive into a little bit of a case study about how you do it in Connected to give people a bit more of a, a practical idea rather than the sort of 30,000 feet thing. And then there's a practical thing, which is, for example, let's say you're looking for a, a NED. And let's say I'm on your platform and I've listed myself as a NED. So your computer asks you, actually, what do you want? Oh, I want someone with fundraising and listing experience or something like that. And da, 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 da. Um, And then so that sort of, you know, turns 10 million people into 10,000 or something like that. And then I presume then the human bit is, well, actually, you've got to sort of meet or interface or, or you know, Zoom with some of these people uh, and see whether they're complete jerks or whether you think they're jerks or that, whether they like you or whether they're going to be interested in, and whether there's, there's a match. Is, is that how it is? I.e. that you break the human being into a, a square peg and a round peg, shall we say, going back to my two-factor model, the square peg can be digitised very easily. But then, of course, you always need the, the round peg bit, which is you, know, you and I need to chat and, or something like that. Absolutely. And I think there's a, a brilliant case study which I can peel out from, from Connected. We had a fantastic 
food tech business onboard themselves into the platform. They were looking for, at that time, a paid non-exec, who was, because that's what they thought they wanted, a paid non-exec who was going to come on and help them with the very hard criteria of having experience within food and beverage on the non-technical side. But they wanted someone who was going to be a bit more of a gray hair in terms of their thinking. These guys were incredibly bright young starters, but they knew that they needed someone who had had the failures, had the, had the experience before, but also still bringing through that commercial element and bringing things to the table in the way that these very lean and, and restricted businesses need. So they were able to locate within a month by matching with someone strategically rather than saying, I need a paid net, and were able to connect and figure out how it should all look. Off the back of that, this individual was able to bring that technology business into pilots with Nando's, KFC, big nationwide businesses. But they found, because of the, the malleable nature of the connection, that rather than this person joining as a paid non-exec, it actually made sense for him to become a mentor to the business. And I think that's where, by matching people strategically rather than saying fixed non-exec, paid, paid non-exec position, you're really allowing these people to take the best of the data-led saying you two should speak and then keep it open-minded. Allow people to figure out that this is not a S traditional listed SME which needs all the above, but actually it can remain very, very flexible. So it, it is using the data to bring the people together, but allowing and encouraging the flexibility which you get with early stage technology startups for the most part. Yes, and I think one thing that leaps out at me at that which you make very clear there and I hadn't uh, sufficiently appreciated its importance, but I can see that it is, which is the differing roles. So going back to the traditional marketplace, you would have an angel network. You know, they, they did a decent job in the way they did it, of, of angeling and getting angels and founders to meet over canopies or, or, or whatever. You've got the sort of neddy recruitment-y thing or, you know, that kind of stuff going on. And, and, and certainly at the larger unlisted uh, they're bloody huge these days they've got hundreds of millions of capital so these are not small businesses by by any sense so there's that sort of world that, that happens i think mentors tend just to sort of appear out the woodwork and people knowing and again what i like about what you're doing is that if some person is a natural entrepreneur but he doesn't know these people especially when you're getting started then it's a brilliant resource that, that you have here to connect to them from the other perspective i started uh, clarity.fm link and offered listeners on the podcast mentoring if they wanted it or something like that and then, you know, so I, I'm not actually sort of selling it as a, as, a, as a product we're just sort of trying to help people but then you find out actually if you're a mentor trying to offer it it's, you know it's like one in a million people want it so actually it's not even a sort of a, a business model even if you were charging money so it's very hard, very hard connecting it but I think one of the things that that you're clearly offering here is an ability to connect business needs to human relationships but then to work out the right format an angel network is probably not going to do so much mentoring in a sense. An angel network is not going to sort of send you off to be a sort of a, a NED or chair of audit committee or something like that. So I, um, I do like this point about your matching people up and then the way in which they match up can be a square circle or a triangle for the sake of argument. And, um, you know, looking at your, your website, you use the acronym NAM, I think, you know, NEDS, Advisors, Mentors. And I thought, well, oh, this is one of these things where you need a sort of nice, simple vocabulary. But one doesn't exist, and I can see why it doesn't exist now, because when, when I said, I mean, when I, in my interest, I said NEDS slash advisor slash mentors, which sounds really sort of gawky. But hidden behind that gawky phrase is a really important thing, which is that you as a business 
Firstly, you want someone you get on with and you want to see and you respect them. <laughs> but secondly, you've got various business needs, but the relationship can actually be structured circle, square, triangle, as it were. Right, okay, so before we wrap up the show, I'd like to thank all the listeners out there. I wonder how many of you are LEDs advisors, mentors now, um, or would want to be in the future. Check out Connected if you do. And my brand partners for the podcast, Smart, is transforming pensions and retirement worldwide. Their leading edge retirement tech platform propelled them to success in the UK. Now they're operating on four continents and working with partners like Zurich and JP Morgan. Find out more at www.smart.co. The enlisted board.com resources to help you start making your board an engine of growth today. And recently I did get around to uploading my slides share on advisory boards if you're interested in reading a few pages on that. So, right, so we can just run over when you started, how many people you are, how many people on your platform, what kind of transaction volumes you're doing, where you're going and, and all that kind of thing. So people are very clear, not just on this topic, but actually on connected.co, connected.co. Fantastic. Thanks, Mike. Essentially, we launched the Connected platform in February last year, so just over a year ago, heading into global pandemic, which was, of course, interesting in terms of seeing transactions flow and challenging at that time, but fantastic in terms of understanding that people do want to strategically connect in a new and efficient way. So we've managed to grow about 20% month on month since we've launched in terms of transaction volume, in terms of paying customers to the platform as well. And we're hovering around the 1000 paying customers mark. We're still very early stage and refining our offering and releasing some brilliant comprehensive tools to make this matching and investment and appointment process as refined and frictionless as possible, which we're really excited to release in, in the next four weeks. And we encourage anyone who is either fundraising, looking to invest or looking to, to start or expand their portfolio career to come and join us at connected.co. We strongly believe in democratization and we have priced this at 20 to 30 pounds per month to really allow everyone to begin that journey and start connecting with relevant people who will help them along their journey in, in, in the most democratic way possible. And the 20 pounds per month is regardless of whether you're a founder, an, an angel, a Ned or a mentor, that everybody pays the same thing? It scales from founder to Ned slash advisor. And of course, we charge a transaction fee to really make sure that we're, we're hinged on success. And which markets are you operating in at the moment? We're completely sector agnostic. We have seen transactions happen on the platform from the first check into electric vehicles all the way through to the lead on, on a Series A within the retail tech space. So it really is sector agnostic. And I think that speaks to the variety and the, the wide range of, of different people on the platform. I think there are so many people who have built up not just capital, but incredible network skills and expertise. We want to help those people turn that into an asset in its own right, which can be used to jump onto the startup ladder. And that means it's completely sector agnostic with, with what these people are interested in. And geographically? All throughout the UK, although we've already seen organic transactions happen from Scandinavia to the West Coast. Excellent. And how do you see the future evolving for you? So once we release our full product offering and, and we're all really happy with uh, the virtuous circle that we've built, absolutely a concerted effort to, to expand globally. Excellent. Well, I'm completely on board with this myself. I think that the most important thing here is creating liquidity in the senior management of businesses, which anybody who is involved with the sector directly, indirectly, knows can have a huge multiplier effect. You manage to create the situation where you're surrounded by good NEDs, advisors, mentors, with connections, skill sets, experience. It will 
multiply your progress 10, 100, 1,000 fold, as well as stopping you sort of steering your ship onto the rocks due to sort of errors that other, other more experienced sea captains can see a bit sort of further on the horizon. So it's a brilliant thing. And also talking about the COVID, the governments have created the economic destruction by their response. Now, maybe validly, maybe not. Let's forget that for the moment. Governments will not rescue the economy, rescue people's lives, rescue jobs by just continuing to run the printing presses 24-7. What will rescue the economy, rescue people, create jobs, is entrepreneurial activity and founders. This is, this is really super forgotten these days. It's people like you, Roy, who are creating employment, creating economic activity, and, and these sort of bureaucratic governments have, have forgotten that. So the fact that you're adding liquidity to that is, I see, as a huge social service. I, I think this is do, can do more good for the country, the economy, and then potentially the world if you're super successful than it would if you're just working in a charity doing, quotes helpful things. Because I don't think there's anything that is more important now than, than rebooting the economy, rebooting employment, and, and giving people me meaning in life rather than just sitting at home taking some sort of government check while the government deflates the currency. So I think that you've definitely launched absolutely perfect timing for you. And I think certainly this is a, an idea whose time has come. If you're back on the show in five years being mega successful, you can tell us actually worked really, really well in this area, really well in this area. And actually it turned out this area didn't work so well. You'll have the empirical uh, evidence by then. But it's something which in, in a sense we can get to the end of the show and say, well, there is actually no alternative to, do, to doing what you're doing now. It's simply a question that how well it's, it's executed. Because you can't go out and about and shake hands and go to canopies and, and, and parties and all that kind of stuff, firstly. And secondly, that process was always very inefficient and it did lead to a very tight circle of people who spiralled up very rapidly. And there were plenty of people who never really got the opportunities because it's a bit like sort of uranium. They didn't quite get enough critical mass in one area so the temperature didn't go up. So I think it's a great thing that you're doing, Roy, and I wish you every success in the future. Thank you so much, Mike. Appreciate you having me on today. Thanks for listening. If you're in need of a non-executive or advisory director with deep expertise, experience and contacts in the worlds of both traditional FS and FinTech, or unique insight into how to make your board an engine of growth today, contact me at mike at mikeballiman.com. If you just need one-off advice in these areas via clarity.fm slash mikeballiman. We could sit in a vendor all day Watching the firelight dance Watching the firelight dance We could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride Watching a happy moon ride To come away from the city With the tarmac so dead And the people so sad Come away from the city But with the faces so gray With the pain of the
like the mountains and the trees Can you see what I mean? Can you see what I mean? We fade in between the earth and the sky Kiss the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye Watch the firelight dance with me. 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 Watch the firelight dance with me.